I first encountered Job with this book. It's Arch Books. It was a line of books, kids' books, that they produced. I don't know when they first came out. I just know I grew up with them. And you have a forlorn, forlorn Job sitting there holding his knees, and he is very much alone. Whenever I see this, I always think of the wise man who built his house upon the rock because of the rocks behind him. And then I also look at Job and I think, that's a great pink prison outfit from Arizona around a certain time frame a couple years ago. I don't know who painted that. I don't know why they thought Job needed a pink stripe outfit. Maybe for a little bit of hope for kids in a very dark book. But we're going to enter actually the lowest point for Job because it wasn't chapter one when he lost almost everything. And it wasn't even chapter two, the part we read last week where he lost a little bit more. It's when people showed up to give him advice. And things got even worse because they didn't have good counsel or sound counsel. They had hurtful and unsound counsel. And anytime I read the book of Job, I'm amazed at what his friends say, but I also realize it's similar sometimes to what we say. So when we get to his friends, I'm actually only going to give you one of his friends to represent the rest today. Because the other thing is I noticed as I read through it this week was Job says so much more than I ever remember. I know that it's a back and forth between him and his friends. But the reality is rock bottom for Job came when the people around him that claimed to love him started to speak to him. So turn with me to Job 2. I promise there will be glimmers of hope today. And ultimately we cling to God our living hope. But this week and next week are a very difficult time for Job as he is stuck wallowing, not by choice, but in the events surrounding him and the the challenges being tossed at him, wallowing in in the depths of despair. So we'll go back to Job chapter 2 and finish it out, starting with verse 9 and 10, his first advisor. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. It starts with his wife. The one thing that he has left, the one thing that he would have a reason to hope to cling to, only that gets dashed very quickly. When she starts speaking to him. Now it's important to remember, this is for the sake of my grandmother in a conversation that we had about this. She's hurting too. She's lost everything that Job has other than his health. She's lost her kids too. But listening to what Job says back to her, I don't think we're supposed to excuse what she says. I would actually challenge my grandma in that conversation now. My grandma was almost always right. Whenever she challenged those of us who were pastors in her family, it proved embarrassing because she was always correct. But on this one, I think she got it wrong. But the reason was she had been a widow. She knew what it was like to endure suffering. My grandpa, her husband, passed away. In fact, both of them did when I was super young. 
And so I really only knew her as a widow. So when a young 20-something or younger pastor-to-be made statements about Job, Grandma was right to challenge me. But I think we still rightly look at Job's wife and while understanding her hurts, say her words were not the right words. That's pretty easy to see. In fact, Job, in responding to her, says, you are speaking like those foolish women. He's not saying all women. Don't accuse Job wrongly. And he's not saying she is one of them. But she, he's pointing out that in her hurt, she's starting to say the same things that he's heard other women say when they were being foolish. Just as we're about to hear some foolish men make some statements. He's telling her, this is not a godly counsel. Here's particularly what she says, though. Are you still holding on to your integrity? Are you still clinging to your God and to your faith? You've lost everything, and you still hold? You still believe? And his answer is yes. But the second thing she says is, curse God and die. This probably isn't just wishing him to be gone. It's, this maybe is more where my grandma was challenging. It's that she hurt seeing him hurt. But it's still bad advice. It says, curse God and he'll wipe you out. Quit this path you're on. It's not working for you. Just let him finish it because you tap out. And Job says, no. It's a great statement. It's one we don't like to say. It's one that we need to be comfortable with saying. But shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? He's not accusing God of evil, but he's recognizing the problem of pain, and he says, I can't take the blessing and then refuse the rest of life and be faithful. It's a powerful moment. As he's looking to the one thing that he has, and he gets no comfort. The one thing that he's been left with. And he gets an answer that would be the wrong answer. But even that isn't the lowest of lows. He's about to be attacked. But first, he has some friends show up and they start to, or at least they often get credit for being good at the beginning. They get a week of not quite blessing, but credit for trying to be a good friend. Job 2, 11 through 13. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Naamathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. There's a couple of interesting things that happen here. Number one, his wife disappears from the scene. She leaves the stage. She doesn't pop back up. She makes the comments. He responds to it. She's around, but she doesn't enter the conversation. Here's the other one. Satan disappears from the scene. Put this in the right perspective. Satan is a minor character in this story and in every story. 
God is the main character of all of Scripture. There are some other significant supporting cast members that come into the drama that plays out throughout all of history. Satan is a tiny role that pops in and out. And I don't mean that he has no power, but remember last week, Satan has to get permission. And Satan comes before God as one summoned, not as one with authority. And so the wife leaves, and Satan leaves, and Job is left for a week in silence with three friends. Now, as I read that, notice they communicated with each other. This has been some time then. They did not have cell phones to text each other. They had to send messengers and letter carriers and coordinate. We don't know how much time passes. In fact, the only time frame we have is when they arrive after some time. They sit for seven days. Three friends, if you take notice of it, by the way, there's a little bit of family in there even. They arrive and they sit in silence for a week. Bildad's a shuhite. That appears to be a descendant of Abraham and Keturah. That's the second wife of Abraham. And Job, Uz, and Bildad through Abraham, and then Elihu, Buzz, this all, if you're, listening, if you're watching Genesis, if it's the same people mentioned, our family then. So it's not just friends, it's cousins or distant. I mean, it's way down the family tree, but it's beyond that. But they're rich people that come in to advise Job, and they start, and they get credit for just closing their mouth. They're grieving with him. The grieving is good, but at some point we should ask ourselves, shouldn't they have said something? Shouldn't they have said the right thing in those seven days? But they just sit in silence. I think we give them a lot of credit for that silence, especially based off of what comes next, because they don't deserve credit from that. But what follows always, to me, feels like a 35-chapter barrage of vomiting upon Job. But it's much more of a multi-round fight. You start with Job and his wife, you go to Job and his three friends, you get Job and a young buck that comes in late to the conversation, or at least late in verbalizing in the conversation, and then you finally get the final, ultimate big boss with God. But it's Job engaging with all of them, and as I mentioned before, he says a lot more than I ever remember him saying. If you've ever had this in go through on your daily devotions, your time with God. Those middle chapters of Job, which is the bulk of the book, 3 to 37, always feel very skippable. You might not feel comfortable saying that, but when I read it, I just think, okay, one and two, it sets the stage. The middle is them saying mean things, and then God shows up at the end, and it's excellent at the end. We'll get there, I promise. But there's much more of Job in there, and it's Job's struggle. So as we look at it, I'm going to focus on Job. We're going to tear through half, well, not quite half, but a chunk of these chapters this week, even faster next week to finish them out. But it's interesting how much more Job speaks than I thought or I ever remember when I'm encountering it. Go to Job 3 now. We're going, to go, we're going to read a bunch of different verses. I'm jumping around. There's so much more to read here. I encourage you, go through it over the next couple weeks. 
make sure you read other parts of Scripture too to encourage you because these are not the encouraging chapters in Scripture. There's some gems in there, but it is difficult reading. Job 3.1. After this, week of silence, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. I wish I had never been born. It would have been better for me to have just not been. That's how brutal the events are. In, in, chap, or in verse 6, sorry, same chapter, 3, verse 6, that night, the day of his birth, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of months. He curses his birthday. You might even see a legitimizing of birthdays in there. It depends on what you want to do with days of the year, if that's every single day of the year, or if you think Job's specifying particular days of the year and celebrations. But Job doesn't want it. I don't want my next birthday, and I wish I hadn't had the ones that preceded it. He goes to eight. Let those who curse it, let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan, and a very interesting thing happens here. It isn't just Job cursing the day. He mentions Leviathan, a sea serpent, arguably. He mentions either a mythical beast or an actual creature from Earth's past. That's a fun discussion, too. I tend to lean more toward the actual creature because of a couple places it's used in Scripture. But he tosses it out. But here's why it's significant. Because if, you're just push, if you just push audio or the audio and play on your phone app of the Bible and you let it go by and you think, ah, oh, Leviathan, and then you miss it because you're catching on to other things or you think, wow, God, He's cursing his existence, and you were the one that gave him his existence. What do I do with that today? I just wanted an encouragement of how to live holy today. When you hear Leviathan, if you know the end of the book, God references Leviathan too. In a couple of the passages I'm going to read today with Job, he wonders if God's listening, and the answer is yes. Because when God makes the argument with Leviathan later, one of the things he's saying that is super easy to miss is, Job, I heard you in chapter 3. I heard you to the, the day you cursed your birth, but don't forget who I am. So I'm going to mention part of your argument. And God actually does it a bunch of times. But Job brings up Leviathan first, not God. God's responding back to Job, not in an attacking way, although it's very strong and firm. It, it is corrective, but unlike Job's friends, it's not an aggressively attacking one. It's God saying, I heard you, Job, because I was there with you. It was not you and three friends. It was you and three friends and me. And I've been taking notes of your argument to encourage you. As we sit in our pain, you need to understand that. Because we think all the time that, that the prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, and God all the time is giving us a little indication that that couldn't be further from the truth. I heard you then, and I want you to know it. I'm going to answer your argument because it isn't entirely correct, but I'm going to answer it in a way that shows you I was paying attention. 
verse 7 and 8. Next chapter, chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Job's still talking. Remember who that was innocent, and I'm sorry, Job is not talking anymore. Chapter 4 and 5, it's a life as. Let him represent the other three. He's going to say something that at least is kind of accurate. It sounds good. He's going to say something that is very bad. He's going to say something, I think, that sounds a whole lot like things that we say. We put on bumper stickers and social media and T-shirts. So chapter 4, different speaker. It's a life as. The friends all say similar things. And he says this to Job. When Job stops talking, you maybe have been here before when somebody you know that is a person of faith is making some statements you're a little uncomfortable with. And then you think you're responding well. But if you're not careful, you're going to respond like Job's friends. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. First thing he says, what innocent person ever perishes? Good people don't face evil. We may not have the guts to say that one, but we think it all the time, especially when we're encountering it. That's the problem of evil. Why do good people suffer? That's the way we phrase it. He's just putting it in a different way. But the other thing you said, and this is true, it's like a proverb. It is a proverb. You reap what you sow. But the context is horrible for that. Especially when you know chapter 1 and 2 that he didn't reap what he sowed. He sowed righteousness and he got the opposite. He got cursing. This is us. This is what we do all the time. It's not necessarily or inherently bad. But it isn't the right place or time and it isn't applicable to Job. And in our finiteness, we all too often have unsound counsel when we haven't paid attention or we can't know everything. And we go to somebody that's hurting and we quote to them Romans 8. God works all things together for the good of those. So accept this is good. And the person facing cancer says, what good is cancer? And they're right. Now, in an eternal perspective, we understand, and some of us in, as Christians, even on our own walk with some difficulties like this, we have seen how God does work those things for good. But when somebody just got the diagnosis of bad news is not the time to toss out Romans 8. Not that part of it. Even the book of Job can be a struggle for people that are suffering. Sometimes it's the last book they want to read. We need to be careful in the timing to make sure what we say is both good in content, but also in the moment. Verse 17, can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Except we know that God's defending that he is. Now the eternal perspective again would say, well, no, Romans 3, nobody's righteous, not apart from Christ. But God's defending Job in the book of Job. So his challenge, his friend's challenge here is wrong. It's inaccurate. In 5.4, this one's brutal. His, he's talking about the fool. His children are far from safety. They're crushed in the gate and there's no one to deliver them. 
You remember how Job's kids died? They were crushed. Could you imagine saying that to a friend? First, you're accidentally or worse, intentionally calling him the fool. And then you're pointing out something cruel in your argument about their kids for a good turn of the phrase. This is bad, very bad. Job's friends are proving to be no friends. He's going to call them out for it later. If you've ever had sympathy for Job's friends, by the way, this is not the moment for that. You don't need to. This is straight-up cruelty. But then there is a good-ish statement. It's a good statement, actually. It's good advice. It may not have been meant as good advice. But in chapter 5, verse 8 and 11, he says, As for me, I would seek God. And to God would I commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable marvels, Marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends water on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. That's good advice. But you can't hear it when your friend was just mocking your kids being crushed. All of us should seek God in every moment. In suffering, we should certainly seek God. We should even seek God the way that his friends are challenging. God, is this discipline that I have done wrong and I'm sinning and I need to repent from it? That is a reasonable question in some moments. But here's the thing. God's not cruel. He will make it clear if you are in the wrong. Now, we sometimes are dull to that and we don't pay attention to the Holy Spirit. But if God is disciplining you because of your sin, he will be using his word and his people to make it clear to you and the Holy Spirit's living inside of you and will make it clear. There won't be a question other than of your actions and you'll know it. Apart from that, if we're in need, we go to God like a little child. God, I need everything from you. In the case of Job, I literally have nothing except a wife who wants me to just tap out of life because she's hurting watching me and some friends that are being brutal to me. But seeking God is exactly what Job's doing. In fact, that's why God seems to be okay with his entire set of responses, even where he pushes back on it. Let me go back to Job. Chapter 6 and 7, he's talking again. Verse 8 and 9 of 6. Oh, that I might have my request and that God would fulfill my hope. God, I'm hoping in you. That it would please God to crush me. You probably haven't prayed this one yet. I hope you never hit the point where you do. And if you do pray it, I hope God, like Job, doesn't answer it the way you, that you're asking. I hope he has his better response. But this is what he prays, that it would please God to crush me that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. He's looking at God. He says, God, just end it. He's not, he's not going to do anything to bring about his own demise, by the way. I was trying to think through how to phrase that best. But he is praying to God, please just end it. 14 and 15, he who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. He's talking to his friends now. My brothers are treacherous, as a torrent bed, as torrential streams that pass away. 
calls out his friends. Why are you withholding kindness from me? Can we go back to the week of silence where you just sat with me? It was better. It wasn't enough, but it wasn't worse. And 7-1, has not man a hard service on earth and are not his days like the days of a hired hand? Here's the wonderful thing about the problem of evil, and it's not a wonderful thing in general, but this is wonderful. Scripture recognizes it. As I mentioned last week, the only sufficient answer for the problem of evil is God's answer. Because if you take God away, you're still left with evil. But here's the other part of that. If you look at all the other answers to the problem of evil, you start seeing denials that it exists. If you are purely materialistic, this is all the world is. There is no eternity or spiritual side to, to, to our life. Then what you're left with is that includes no evil. That's a worse response. Scripture looks at it and says, yes, it is hard. I have a complete answer to that. But it starts with, you're correct. This is evil. It's not how things are supposed to be. Job recognizes that. The book of Job recognizes that. Verse 17, then, he makes an interesting complaint. What is man, himself in particular, that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him? It's the opposite of Psalm 8, by the way, which has it in a good response. What is man that you're mindful of him, that you care about him? Here Job says, what is man and what am I in particular that you care so much to have your attention so turned on me? I wish that I was nothing to you and you'd ignore me. It's a weird complaint. And he's going he's gonna to kind of take it another extent later on. I don't think we're going to read it today, but... But he says, God, why are you so mindful of me? And if you're going to be that mindful of me, then he goes back to the crush thing. Then just squatch me. But this intense focus without rescue is brutal. Aren't these wonderful chapters? This is, this is such a joyful book to go through. It ends that way. There's some hope coming up, by the way. Chapter 9, we're going to skip 8. Like the Leviathan... Here's another set of verses that tell you that God is listening. And not only that he was listening, but that he wanted Job to know that he was listening. Because this is brought up by Job, but then it's in God's answer too. Job 9.9, who made the bear? Ursa Major. Who made the bear and Orion? The Pleiades and the chambers of the south. Job brings these up and then God expands it in his answer, and it's beautiful. It's such a cool picture of God's power over creation. But it also is a, a gentle reminder to Job, I was listening. I was there in your pain. Verse 11, chapter 9, verse 11. Behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him pretty interesting. It sounds a lot like, and it would probably be a foreshadowing then, because this event would be most likely way after Job, but it sounds a lot like, to me, a little foreshadowing of Moses when he asked God to pass by. But Job says, if you're passing by, 
I can't see you. It also, though, is a reference back to something that one of the friends said. They mentioned a passing by. But it's super, that jumped out of me as I was reading it this week. That, oh my goodness, is it? I don't have an answer on that, but is that a foreshadow of an event we're going to see later? Most likely. Again, the timeline of Job is difficult to nail down. But if you take a look at the indicators, it kind of seems to be before Moses and after the flood, after Abraham. Verse 16. And this gets to where it's going to go next and the end result, even though we have many chapters to go. Job says this, If I summoned him, God, and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. It's a powerful statement. We do this quite often, by the way. Because the reality is this. It doesn't matter what God is doing when we've convinced himself he's not doing anything. I mean, it does matter because he's God and he's more powerful than us. But we become unconvinced by everything he's doing if we've determined ahead of time that he's not active or present or listening. But wrestle with this. Job is not condemned. Corrected, but not condemned. When God shows up, he lays into Job's friends, but he does not lay into Job. He teaches him. He tells him he's listening. He abases him. But here, early on, Job says, I don't even know if I'd believe he was listening. And yet everything around this, as he's bringing things up, again, God is taking notes, but not in a debate way of I want to like beat him and win the points of the argument and prove that I'm right. In a I'm listening to you way, and you need to know my power, because that's going to be God's answer. It's a beautiful little pause there, or a little, little point there, maybe. But he also mentioned summoning. If I summon God, I can't. Kind of interesting. Verse 17. Here's some more pain. For he crushes me without a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it's a matter of justice, who can summon him? I can't. I want to. But nobody summons God. God summons Satan. His friends show up as if they're summoned. Interestingly, though, God is going to show up like he was summoned, even though he can't be. He's the one in power. But Job also said something where sometimes in pain we feel this. It's as if God won't let me get my breath. I don't know if you've ever been doing anything where you've had the wind so knocked out of you that you thought that was the end. Your eyes are still working, but your lungs have declared that this is it. It's done. They're not going to work again. You're just staring at the world, wondering what's going to happen, maybe even hitting the point where you start losing some vision for a little bit. For me, I've had a number of those, but the one that stood out to me most, I played water polo when I was high school, is I was pushed under the pile, all the bodies, and I'm staring up, trying to figure out how I'm going to punch my way through and literally punch my way through because you don't care who you hit at that point, teammate, opponent, whatever. You're just looking up and going, I need the air. 
and all I see is bodies and water. But I can't get my breath. And if it's a deep enough pool, you can't even push off the bottom to rock it out of it. You just got to try to press through everything. That's how Job feels. I'm, I'm done. He won't let me breathe. It's not true that God won't let him breathe, but that's how he feels. Verse 20 through 24, though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I'm blameless, he would prove me perverse. Standing before God, he's going to be proven right. But then he says, I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one. Therefore, I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. This may make you uncomfortable. This is one of those sets of passages where you're looking at it going, uh, can Job say those things? When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks God. He's not talking about his friends. He's talking about God. He mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? Again, you might have to wrestle with some of what Job says, but also wrestle with the fact that God seems to be all right with it. God doesn't seem to be offended. If you've ever heard U2's 40, it's literally Psalm 40. They go through it, or at least it starts with it. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. That's the encouraged and hopeful psalmist. But if you know the chorus, you might have struggled with it. How long? The chorus, it's how long. It's a long, drawn out. It's beautiful. How long to sing this song? How long? How long? How long? And then they kept forever saying how long. For the longest time, I struggled with it. Why did they put that into Psalm 40 when they wrote the song? And then you read Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? It's like Job wrote it. It's a different person, but it's like Job wrote it. That's where he's at. And we got to wrestle with this because that's in the hymn book of Scripture. You two wasn't wrong for putting it in their chorus. How long, O Lord? Job would have sung it. Yes. How long? Because that's how he feels. It continues. Jumping over to 13. I'm going to read a long chunk here. Behold, my eyes, my eye has seen all of all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, he's talking about what his friends are accusing him. What you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you, but I would speak to the Almighty, not you all. And I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewash with lies. Worthless positions are all of you. Oh, that you would keep silent, and it would be your wisdom. Hear now my argument, and listen to the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak falsely for God and speak deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality toward him? Will you plead the case for God? Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Or can you deceive him as one deceives a man? He will surely rebuke you if in secret you show partiality. Will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall upon you? Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. Let me have silence 
and I will speak, and let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh and my teeth and put my life in my hand? Beautiful verse here, though, in 15. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. There's a lot that's in there. It starts with this. Forget about you. Friends, you can go home. I'm done with you. They don't. But he's like, you're ridiculous. I would speak with God the Almighty. Let me talk to the omnipotent one because he can end everything and I'm convinced he's the one that's bringing this. He understands God's sovereignty. He says, I want my day in court is where he's going. I would desire to argue my case with God. I want to stand face to face with him. I'm the defendant and he's the plaintiff. Let him bring the case against me because I don't know it and I'm pretty sure I'm not wrong. But you all... The jury can go home. I don't need your time. I certainly don't need your advice. It's been worthless. In fact, he calls them, or he, he says they whitewash with lies. How, use that next time you're on the phone with somebody. See how it goes. Don't. It's not going to work for your relationship. You whitewash with lies and you're worthless physicians. You have no helpful advice and you probably got the diagnosis wrong but you are worthless. Why did you come all this way to just chastise me? You were proven not to be friends. Then he goes back to, can we go back to the end of chapter two where you're just quiet? It's nice to have somebody. It's not nice when they have mean words. That you would just keep quiet and then you would sound smart. By the way, their response to this, like we tend to do is, oh, it's on. Let's go, buddy because they just keep going. There are many more chapters to come of this. Next week we'll be much more hopeful, looking at a couple interesting points of what Job says. But they go, it's on. But then he says, well, you speak falsely for God. I don't think you're on his side in the case. If you were his lawyers, he'd fire you. You're not speaking truth. Then he turns it on them. And can you withstand his gaze? I have him with the full light and exposure on me. Do you want to take my spot? Because I don't think you three can stand. I know I'm not wrong, but based off of what you're saying, I don't think you could take my place. Psalm 139, by the way, it says, some, it's a major paraphrase, but it says, search me and know my ways and call me out on them. It's an interesting end to Psalm 139. That's kind of what Job says, though, is if you get that spotlight, God's going to expose some things that you won't be able to withstand his gaze. And then he seals them off with this one, even though they're all going to continue talking. You have proverbs of ashes and defenses of clay. You're burned up and easily broken. You have no words worth my time. But then he turns to God and he says, even if God comes, shows up, and slays me, and this is probably why God's okay with this wrestling match that he's in with God, I will hope in him. Because he's my only hope. 
No matter how bleak everything is, and we're seeing it with Job, he's the only one that he can cling to, and Job knows it, and he is unwilling to abandon God. He wants his day in court, but he wants to hold on to the plaintiff in that case. Your case against me is going to fall apart, but at least I'll be in your presence, and you're my only hope. That's where we need to go with pain. God, I'm not happy with what's going on, but you're the one that I have to talk to, and I want to talk with you. I might not want to talk with you at this moment, but I want to talk with you. And if you've been in a painful moment, you understand that sentence makes total sense, even though it sounds like gibberish. I want you, even though I don't want you. But I need you. and You're my hope. I do want you. Please show up. But know this, I'm going to plead my case that I am not out of line. Then 22. Then call and I will answer. He says, I'll show up if you summons me, summon me. But then he says this, and it's a very interesting statement, especially if you know and remember the book of Job. Or let me speak and you reply to me. That's exactly what the book of Job is. Job being harassed by his friends. Job responding, being harassed by his friends. Job responding, harassed by his friends. It's three rounds. Job making one more statement, getting harassed by a fourth dude. And then God shows up. Remember, Job said, if you showed up, I'm not convinced I'd believe that you were listening. But God shows up and he makes it clear I was listening the whole time. And here Job says, how about this? Let me speak, and then you go. You reply to me. That's exactly what God does. It's another moment that makes it clear that God was listening. All right, Job. I'm okay with that because I'm listening. That's exactly where the book goes. Let me wrap this up for you a little bit. Start with the problem of evil. This is the biblical answer for the problem of evil. This is a short version. It's much deeper than this. Scripture says it exists and it is bad. In fact, it's worse than you realize. That's Scripture's point. But it is man, Adam, and all of humanity that is culpable, responsible for it, not God. He's sovereign over it, but we are responsible for it. Wonderfully, Christ's redemptive work on the cross is God's answer to the problem of evil. But we're still left in a tension, but the Bible recognizes it. He says, in that tension, God is with you. That's Psalm 23. That's why we started with it. But also, until his return, we still live in that tension. And Scripture talks about it. It tells us how to live in light of it. And again, it tells us that God is with us. But we are in a sin-broken world until he returns. That's why we struggle with the problem of evil. But scripture doesn't deny it. It talks openly about it. And it tells us he has the answer and he tells us there's an ultimate end to it because when he returns, he will cast it into hell. Scripture is clear. It's the only answer. But then the other part is what we see in Job. So take our problems to God. He can handle it. He can take it. Even when we're angry. Summer of 2009, and So You Think You Could Dance, it's a reality show contest for dancers, like actual good quality dancers. 
They did a special on breast cancer for a show. It was choreographed by Tice Dioro, if I got his name right. It was with a dancer, a ballet dancer named Melissa and Ade, and it's amazing. If you go look at it, what stands out, at least to me in it, though, is there's some amazing lifts where you have this woman that's dealing with cancer and basically a friend that you see lifting her up at different moments. You see her run and leap into his arms, but the other one you see is she runs up and with three pounds just beats his chest. Bam, bam, bam. Because that's the experience of pain. Even with my loved ones, you can take it and I got to get it out. But it's exactly what we see in Job also. That wasn't the point of the dance, although it's very fitting and apropos. But what you see in Job is him run up to God and just beat his chest. And God wraps him up. That's the book of Job. And that is the solution to the problem of evil. But what do we do if our friends and family are no help at all in that battle? We all the more go to God. That's the answer. But the other one is the friends and family. We need to make sure in life's most painful moments that we have sound counsel, not hurtful advice and unsound counsel. As the body, we need to meet with truth that is well-timed and in the right relationship and is saturated in grace, even when and where it needs to be corrective, that we would come with God's word and love. That's the point of 1 Corinthians 13, which again is a body passage. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. And when we face pain, even or especially when it's at the hands of friends and family, like Job, we need to say, though he slay me, even if that's the outcome, I will hope in him. Because apart from him, I have no hope. That's why I find my hope in him. And even in the moments where we wonder, is he listening? We need to be reminded by God's answer in Job that yes, absolutely, in the end, that powerful response by God when he shows up, that end has it in every single part of the answer that, Job, I was listening when you mentioned Leviathan, and I was listening when you mentioned the bear and Orion, and I was listening when you mentioned, even in chapter 12, the loosening of belts of the strong one, strong man, not one, it's not Satan, of the strong man. I was listening to every single painful argument you made as I watched your friends, family even, destroy you. I was there and comforting you. And as we're talking about in the youth ministries this year, I'm your tear collector. I'm catching your tears in a bottle. It's from the Psalms. Catching your tears in a bottle and writing your pain in a journal because I am absolutely listening. So cling to me. Beat my chest if you need to, but don't run away. Find your hope in God. Let's pray. Lord, we have pains. This is a sin-broken world, and sometimes it's my own sin that I am encountering that, in, that is breaking it. Lord, but other times it has nothing to do with us. It's just Adam's fall. 
and the broken people around us, sometimes even the people that we love. And it's insult added to injury and salt poured in wounds, brokenness. But we turn to you because you are our hope. Even in dark and hard passages like Job, you are the hope that we cling to. You are the hope that we run to. When everything is bleak, help us to remember that you are our hope. We praise your name. Amen.